0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today the subject of our podcast is a sort of broad look at the history of Greeks or Greek Greek Orthodox communities uh, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, sort of really from the beginning of uh, the Ottoman Empire's history and into the uh, 18th century. Uh, Our guest today is certainly someone who's qualified to speak on that topic, uh, Professor Molly Green. She's professor of history at Princeton University and a faculty member at the Seeger Center for Hellenic Studies. Uh, professor Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be uh, recording with you here today uh, on the Upper West Side, uh, actually right across the street from a pretty sizable Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation. I hadn't Annunciation. thought of that. That's yeah. nice. <laughs> it's, uh, I saw it on my way over here. And I was like, wow, look at that. So <laughs> kind of piecing the, the puzzles together, but... Uh, uh, Professor Green is the author of a number of books uh, relevant to the history of Greeks in the Ottoman Empire and the Mediterranean. Um, her book, A Shared World, which came out in 2000, uh, looked at Christians and Muslims in the Mediterranean, uh, living together and interacting, we could say. Uh, and a more recent book, Catholic, Catholic Pirates and Greek Merchants, uh, looked at s- similar themes uh, in the Mediterranean and focusing on that book. Uh, that uh, borderlands region that is the the maritime space uh, of the uh, Mediterranean during the Ottoman period. Uh, our subject today is her new book with Edinburgh University Press. It's called the Edinburgh History of the Greeks, fourteen fifty three to seventeen sixty eight. And this book is um, it's more of a survey, uh, and indeed it is a survey of. Uh, what the state of the literature is on Greeks in the Ottoman Empire. And I think for the period that it covers, it's really a survey of where the historiography is at in terms of thinking about what the Ottoman Empire was uh, as a polity uh, and its relationship vis-a-vis non-Muslim subjects. So, uh, Professor Green, I want to start out with a, a question that is isn't at all a criticism, but it's a, it's a question that comes out of the title, actually, the 1453 to 1768. Because one of the interesting things you do in the work is after starting with that 1453, the conquest of Istanbul in the title is say, actually, the starting point for our subject is before the conquest and it's in the Balkans. I thought this is a very interesting way of framing the history of Greeks in the Ottoman Empire. It's a different way of looking at the question. Why don't you tell us why you set it up that way and, and explain that right. context?
1: So first, I should say a little bit about the context of the publication of the book. I was approached uh, to write this book. This mm-hmm. is my first commission book. Uh, and the University of Edinburgh Press is doing a history of the Greeks from antiquity yes. to the present. Uh, and this is one of the decisions of, that you have to make in your, in your career. Uh, the the premise is something I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because it implies the continuity thesis, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm uh, very much opposed to, and I think it can't be supported. Uh, but of course, I did want to write uh, the volume, so there were, and I was pleased to be uh, to be asked. Uh, so, but there were certain constraints, and this these are the dates that they gave. And I actually, in the beginning, thought that I would write a uh, beginning in, in 1453, and the book does end around 1768. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but the more I read, uh, the more I realized that the conquest of the Greek world was uh, was a gradual one, mm-hmm. uh, taking place over many decades, if not centuries, uh, and it was really this detail about Thessaly uh, mm-hmm. that caught my attention when I realized that by the time the city had fallen, uh, the Ottomans had been in Thessaly at least since the 1420s, and one could say even going back to the end of the 14th century, I realized that there was the interregnum uh, with the defeat of Bayezid in uh, Anatolia. Mm-hmm. E- even there, it's not clear how much the Ottomans actually moved out of Thessaly. Mm-hmm. At any rate, by the time the city fell, there were third-generation C- Christian sepahis who had been there by the to- um, since the time of Evrenos mm-hmm. Bey, the conqueror of Thessaly. And here we're yeah. speaking about the plain of Thessaly and particularly the city of Larissa or Yenishehir. Um And we know this from the cadastral surveys. So this this has to mean, I mean, this is my conclusion, that uh, by the time the city fell, of course it was important symbolically, but the uh, Christian elite in Thessaly had already made its arrangements with the Ottomans. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's a very fascinating way of reframing uh, the historiography for a lot of reasons. I mean, we can talk about the implications of that for our understanding of the Ottoman Empire if you want to talk to the Ottoman historians out there who are listening. Uh, And this is a development that's been happening sort of in the literature, looking at the um, pre-conquest Ottoman state and just what it was made of, which is actually a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of it was uh, sort of bringing in local Christian elite into the ruling structure. And as you said, it might seem like a small amount of time on paper, but we're talking about generations uh, of interaction there.
1: It's actually interesting that you talk about that trend of speaking about the pre-Ottoman conquest or the, uh, the the pre-1453 conquest. I hadn't thought about that, but of course there's other work, I can uh, reference my, my student uh, Helen Pfeiffer, uh, who has also blurred, the, and others uh, who has also blurred that 1516-1517 15, 15, line, that in fact there were Ottoman scholars going to Cairo, mm. uh, Arab scholars going to Istanbul before 1416-1417, 14, 14, so people already knew each other. And as you see in the book, um, I make this uh, comment that um, uh, even as as, as regards uh, the patriarch in Istanbul, uh, there were contacts before 1453. This is not the coming together of two um, strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that uh, I drew inspiration from for that first chapter and with the decision to start in Thessaly long before the conquest uh, was the work of Byzantine historians mm. who have, um, in the last several decades, really uh, drawn into question the significance of Uh, Mm 1204-1261 and the idea that 1261 restored the Byzantine Empire. More and more the scholarship points to the fact that like Humpty Dumpty, what had been broken apart could not be put Uh back together. And that after 1261, yes we speak about the Byzantine Empire, but what we really have is one small state around Constantinople uh, and a bunch of other regional power centers, which means that the Greek world was fragmented politically, culturally, uh, so Uh it makes no sense that uh, Fatih Mehmet in 1453 inherited this sort of homogenous Greek world Right. when Byzantine historians are writing the exact opposite.
0: But one of the interesting points that that raises, I think, for thinking about Greek history and thinking about Ottoman history uh, is that with the Ottoman conquest of this large region, suddenly uh, most of what we would say is the, the, whether you think about it as an uh, ethnolinguistic group or a religious group, the Greek world is united by uh, a polity, the Ottoman Empire, uh,
1: by the uh, 16th century, right? So one of the things that I think is in- important is when we say the Greek world, yeah. uh, again, yes, it, it is a Greek world and there's a very particular place for a Hellenic culture. But I would say that um, uh, various, um, various regional power centers come under, come under the control of one state, to say the Greek world is, is, I think, to imply kind of homogeneity, yeah. which I'm trying to break apart. Right. And the other thing that I would say more concretely, and I try and bring this out in the book, is that um, the conquest of the Greek world, of course, goes on even after 1453 and up through the 17th century. And I've written about this more in my mm-hmm. other two books. Uh, a significant part of the Greek world is still under Latin control. Yeah. So it really takes a long time for true. Yeah, the uh, most Greeks, Greek yeah. subjects... For most people that we would identify as Greek, admittedly a difficult mm-hmm. question, um, to be subjects of uh, of the Sultan huh. and, and that has consequences. Uh-huh.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk about what you know, what it means. What it, what it, what are Greeks in the Ottoman Empire? What does it mean to be Greek in the Ottoman Empire? Uh, what are we talking about here? Uh, certainly, if we want to think in terms of the ecclesiastical structure, we have the uh, the Greek Patriarchate, which is like a a religious and political body that, like, kind of unites Greeks throughout the Ottoman Empire. But conversely, what is the diversity or different um, communities of Greeks that we're talking about when we're talking about the Greeks under Ottoman rule? As you are in this survey,
1: um, one of the things that I liked about the approach of the series uh, under mm-hmm. the under the directorship of uh, Tom Gallant. Who wrote the Who has written the volume now out for the nineteenth century? Is that this is very much a history of the Greeks, not of Greece, mm-hmm. and uh, most histories of uh, Greece focus on uh, a part of the empire, uh, the large part of which was uh, marginal to the empire. Uh-huh. Uh, what became the modern Greek state was yeah. a backwater uh, of the empire, and the, the centers of Greek life, I mean, in terms of Greek elite culture, uh, had long ago shifted you know, further north and, and to the east. I mean, places like Thessaloniki, uh, Istanbul, of course, uh, and places in Anatolia. One of the things that I um, argue in the book is that uh, the Patriarchate uh, continues to be the bearer of elite greek culture so i disagree with anthony caldellis who says that uh, this byzantine historian who when looking at the the relative weight of byzantine identity which is roman greek Mm -hmm. and christian um says that there was a kind of mix of these three and after the ottomans this identity becomes wholly christian Hmm. i mean entirely christian yeah (laughs) entirely christian um which makes sense, given that the Ottomans, of course, classified people according to religion, not yeah. uh, ethnicity. Exactly. Um, and, and he's right that it becomes more so. However, there's there's good evidence that uh, in Istanbul itself, mm-hmm. um, the Patriarchate uh, continued, of course, to be a Greek-speaking institution, and that this room identity mm-hmm. um, uh, um, continued to be the identity that elites in Istanbul uh, held on to. Let me give an example of this. Uh, Caldelli shows that uh, it, late in Byzantine history, this Roman identity, this Rome identity, was still very strong in Constantinople. However, and this is here I'm re- referencing uh, the work of um, um, uh, Teresa Charcross, amongst others, further south, let's say, in uh, the Morea and the Peloponnesus, this Roman identity is not uh, important. Hmm. There's other types of identities. There's not this adherence to a, a Roman identity.
0: So the so the the room or Roman identity is something that is a feature of
1: Anatolia and Syria, but not where is so the line a, it, there? It's a, it's a feature it's a feature of uh, Constantinople. Ah, okay, okay, so that so that never goes away. Uh, what happens over time is that beginning from the late seventeenth century, this room identity, this uh, adherence to something that is that has a Greek flavor beyond uh, uh, plain Christianity, mm-hmm. um, uh, starts to spread uh, across the empire. And one of the things I argue about Hellenism, mm-hmm. and I, I won't go into all the ways we can define this, but sure. let's say about Hellenism, about Greekness, as opposed to, say, the Serbians or the Bulgarians, um, is that it waxes and wanes because Greek civilization is a civilization as opposed to simply a, an ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Um People can join it, and people can leave it. Yeah. Um, and the Ottoman period, when the Ottomans um, conquered the city, I would say that, that the room identity, the specifically Greek identity and additional Christian identity, is a very much on the decline. And over time, under Ottoman patronage, it gradually expands. Hmm. So that by the 18th century, in the far western Balkans, um, around the city of Ohrid, you once again have Greek-speaking elites in there staffing the church, uh, as opposed to Serbian, or you have the beginning of the Hellenizing mission. Uh, let's say in the in the far east, in Trebzon mm-hmm. or in places like Smyrna. But this is this is the particular development under the Ottomans. But um, if we go back to the ninth century, when the Byzantine emperors re-Hellenized southern Greece from Mm -hmm. the Slavs this is something that I think is quite fascinating about Hellenic civilization is that it shrinks and grows and Mm -hmm. shrinks and grows it's an option that is always there for um, the Christians of the Balkans and of Anatolia and even to a certain extent of the Middle East
0: Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Molly Green about her new work, uh, the Edinburgh History of the Greeks, 1453 to 1768. I want to remind our listeners that you can check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to find uh, the link where you could either uh, look up that book or purchase that book, uh, as well as a few other uh, useful uh, pieces of background reading uh, for the bibliography for this podcast. Uh, Professor Green, I want to continue with what we were just talking about, which is the the waxing and waning of uh, what you call Hellenic civilization, or at least uh, uh, Hellenism is sort of this uh, identity uh, that um, resurges uh, during the Ottoman period. How do you explain this resurgence? What is the context of the rising Greek identity because a lot of our, ris- our listeners will be familiar with the, the, the more nationalist version of history, the awakening and whatnot. But I think what you're referring to is an is a earlier uh, resurgence, so to speak. So could you open that yeah. up a little bit?
1: Yeah. Um, let me say a bit more about the word room and um, my assertion that an association with Rome, as opposed to simply Christian, never left the elites of Istanbul. Uh-huh. And we know that at the end of the 15th century, um, one of the very few times that a, um, that a Slav was appointed at the Patriarchate, uh, he was chased out, and, and his inability to speak Greek properly mm. uh, was made fun of. So this, this, this is one example we have, despite the fact that you won't see this reflected in Ottoman official records, a Christian is a Christian. We know that a sense of Greekness and Hellenism was always strong in Constantinople. Uh, however, it was definitely on the decline uh, in the early Ottoman centuries, and in fact, I discuss this the instability of this word "room" and mm-hmm. how, in the 16th century, it comes it comes to be applied more and more to the Ottomans themselves. They uh-huh. start to say, "We are the room," and yeah. it's also interesting. We can't prove the connection, but it's interesting that around the time, and Jamal Kafadar has pointed this out, at the end of the 17th century the Ottoman Turks less and less refer to themselves as Rum mm-hmm. and we see this term appear more and more amongst the Greeks, the Greek elite. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it, it, it sort of moves around. Yeah. At any rate. And this, this is
0: after the conquest of the Arab provinces
1: this is after the which conquest changes
0: a little bit the, the, it changes, the right.
1: image of the Ottoman dynasty. Right, right. Um, the, um, so, the, re- the resurgence of Greek, Greek identity is very much related to the growing strength of the church. Mm-hmm. Second half of the 17th century, the patriarch couldn't even get an audience with the sultan. By the 18th century, the barats are getting longer and longer as he secures more and more privileges. This, to a certain extent, is known. The resurgence of Greek identity has, in the past, been linked to the return of the nation, the rise of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this, I think, has been effectively demolished. Uh, by Greek scholars like Socrates, Petmazas, uh, Alenigara, many, many people. Uh, and what's clear is that the um, resurgence of Greek identity at the elite level, at the lowest level, of course, yeah. it's hard to know what people, uh, is very much related to the the growing strength of the church. And the growing strength of the church is not related to anything as amorphous as the return of the nation, it is related to the increasing importance of the church in helping the Ottomans run the empire.
0: And, yeah, so why does the church become so important uh, in, in governance? Uh,
1: well, the Ottomans, um, and this is, this is a story that's sort of well-known for the Muslim side, mm-hmm. but it's not often appreciated that there's a parallel development on the Christian side. Uh, the Ottomans, with the, with the end of the Sipahi class, as you know, are looking for new partners to help them run the empire— uh, and the church is there, and the church steps into uh, the breach. So,
0: how do you see this trend? Do you see this as a, uh, a, de- a decentralization? What is the change that's taking place in the Ottoman states during the 17th century? I mean, what is what is this example of the the Greek patriarchate? Tell us about the larger uh, Ottoman world at this time.
1: Right. I mean, one of the things that I try and do in the book with the Patriarchate and with other things is to um, argue, and I think it's correct, that Christian society, at least before 1770, is not going off on on some sort of alternative path Uh to Muslim society. Their paths tend to be running parallel, Uh and that um, institutional developments in the Ottoman Empire have far more to do, tell us far more, about the patriarchate and about Christian institutions than some sort of separate Christian fate or the rise of the mm-hmm. uh, nation. Uh, so when uh, the Ottoman Empire is looking for communities, uh, as they turn more and more to communities to pay the taxes, you have uh, bishops and metropolitans and, and church elites across the Balkans saying, you know, we'll collect the taxes uh-huh. for you. Um, so, So the church adds... The administrative um, responsibilities mm-hmm. uh, to its um, to its other responsibilities, mm-hmm. which are sort of a little bit less clear cut than we used to think. Um, so just as um, a Muslim merchant, uh, a Muslim uh, qadi, um, uh, different um, pre existing social elites in the Arab and the Balkan provinces step in, uh, so do, so too do uh, church officials.
0: Welcome back, Chris Grayton here talking uh, with Professor Molly Green about her new uh, history of the Greeks in the Ottoman Empire. You know, this is a general survey, so I want to ask another general question uh, of broad relevance to to our listeners who might be curious about how your discussion of the rise of uh, the Patriarchate as a political and administrative institution is related to the changing understanding of the Milet system in the Ottoman Empire. Uh There has been quite a bit of historiographical debate uh, surrounding what the Millet system really is, if it was a system, and when it came about. So what is the relationship here? Is what we came to call the Millet system in the 19th century a product of this transformation? Is this transformation brought about by the
1: creation of the Millet system? What is the causal relationship, or what is the link? Uh, This is what uh, Socrates Petmazas wrote in 1996. since so the formation of a formal set of prerogatives and privileges belonging to the Greek Orthodox patriarchate recognized by the sublime port as well as the consolidation and the enlargement of his power over his suffragans and his peers the other patriarchs the uh, archbishops of the autocephalous churches uh, was the patient work of three centuries um, so if you do the math 1453 yeah. uh, it's in the 18th century that the that the patriarch has really consolidated his power uh-huh. to the in a way that reminds us of the millet system although the, this was still i would say de facto rather than de jure which is what became the case in the 19th century uh-huh. when the ottoman state like all modernizing states wants to make society more uh, legible yeah exactly prior to that one of the things i've tried to bring out and i and i have to i don't think i succeeded entirely and i don't think the scholarship is still there yet um, I've talked about the uh, rather li- limited and contingent and and always contested uh, prerogatives that that were given to the patriarch and and I did try and bring out in the book the extent to which we shouldn't take the Greek Orthodox community for granted, but look at how it is, how are there many communities, and how community leadership, um, throughout the centuries, has to be constantly reestablished yeah. and contested, which sort of makes sense when you think about communities in the pre-modern world. But we have given, we have just, a, we have given Christian elites a natural authority. Let yeah. me just give you uh, one example. I um, the wonderful work of Sophia Lau, um has shown. Usually, we see monasteries as sort of bastions of, of Christian identity yeah. or Greek Orthodox identity, uh, and she has shown how uh, um, relatives of, uh, you know, we know that peasants donated their property to monasteries, and we know they did a lot of that because yeah. monastic property grows during the Ottoman period. Mm-hmm. Um, she has shown that relatives of peasants who donated their land to monasteries went to the Islamic court to protest those donations, and saying, you know, that those lands should have gone to us, according to Islamic laws of inheritance, things like this. Uh. This shows... That this thing that we call the community uh, is in fact a very contested sure yeah what we still don't know too much about, although so this is a wonderful example that Sofaela is um is how community was lived and contested at the local level, and I think that's something that we absolutely have to do more with uh, going forward, but I would reject the idea that uh, that sort of Fatih met sort of handed the keys to the um you know to the castle over to uh, Ganadios and said, okay you're in charge of the Christians from now on. That is absolutely not what mm-hmm. happened.
0: Oh, that's, that's a very interesting way to frame it. And you know, it, this book as a whole, yeah, you know, I went through a lot of it on my way over here and, um, uh, it's almost like every paragraph is, uh, a historiographical discussion unto itself. That's taking place off somewhere, uh, with some scholars and right. definitely in your head. And it, it, you know, each one opens up one of these, uh, complex questions that you can look at, uh, again, on the local level and in, in new ways. And it really um, opens up a, a lot of exciting avenues uh, for research, actually, for a student getting into the topic. I, which brings me to um, maybe a, a larger point, which I think is uh, sort of the spirit driving this work, at least. And, and I like that Edinburgh Press chose to to, to go this direction with the, with the history of the Greeks, is that this, tale, this book is a... A lot of it is about the Ottoman Empire, actually. A yes. lot of it is about what was happening in the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of it is bringing together what's happened in the historiography of how we think about the Ottoman state mm-hmm. uh, that's been developing over the past two decades. Obviously, it can't be summed up in, in, a, in a sentence, but what do you think the example of looking at the history of the Greeks up until the, the mid-18th century is telling us about the Ottoman Empire as a whole, as an entity, as a political space and, and as a social world, you know, sort of turning it on the, uh, turn, looking at the other side of the coin. What is, what is, uh, what, are, what are some of the insights that have, for you, have come out of this work?
1: That's a great question. And I very, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was I wanted to write the history of the Greeks in conversation with major debates in Ottoman history. Mm-hmm. The last time a general narrative of the Greeks under the Ottomans was written was 1961. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can imagine that that at that time, uh, it was a great work, Apostolos uh, Vakalopoulos' work, but this was not even on the horizon, the idea of engaging with Ottoman debates. So I wanted to write about the um, Christians as subjects of the Sultan and as part of Ottoman society. What do we learn about uh, the Ottomans? For instance, the 18th century, I take issue with, I mean, it's a great work, but I take issue with Baki Tezjan and Karen Barkey's uh, assertion um That in the 18th century, a kind of proto-Muslim polity is forming, which uh alienates the Greeks hmm. and leads to their general, their their um their gradual exit. Yeah, and I think, and I've talked about this with Baki. I think one of the reasons this can be asserted is that it's almost an aside. and And Baki said mm-hmm. to me, "Yeah," he said, "Actually, you know, I mean, he doesn't work on the Christians, but I think yeah. oftentimes." People who work on, quote-unquote, mainstream Ottoman history and don't uh, work on the Christian communities uh, do make these kind of asides, uh, and they need to be developed, which mm-hmm. is what I try to do in my book. Yeah. So my argument about the 18th century is that um, uh, for the Christians, the future very much looked imperial, and uh, I don't see any um, um, evidence for um, prior to 1768 of a significant uptick in alienation from the empire. Okay, um, and what I argue is not so much that uh, Christians felt equal to the Muslims. Of course, they didn't, and it might even have been the case that Muslims were um, amassing privileges in the way that Baki uh, argues. Yeah, but what I do argue is that Christian is that is that um, uh, Christian institutions found a uh, a more secure home uh, within the empire, and uh, that this must have always been their primary concern, not relations with Muslims, not whether they were equal, they were never going to be equal uh-huh. uh, but that they that they found a um, that they stabilized their position uh-huh. in the eighteenth century, and yeah. this was the major development uh, which works very much against any sort of idea that they 're being alienated and sort of you know looking to head out head out
0: uh-huh. I mean, it, it, for me, as somebody who works more on the the later Ottoman period, it really puts it it makes a a much longer uh, historical context for stuff we talk about right up into the last years of the Ottoman Empire. You know, we had Vangelis Kechriotis on the podcast. Unfortunately, he. Uh, sadly passed away recently uh, but he he studied how uh, even right up until the very last days of the empire there were many many greeks or Rome who did see an imperial future for themselves as well because that is that was their status quo and they they try to find a way of fitting into that i mean the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive until after world war one the nation and the, the state aren't really firmly linked but anyway it's a separate issue
1: um, yeah, if I could jump in on that, yeah. and I'm very much building uh, one of the ironies, and I talk about this in, in chapter seven, is that uh, it's quote unquote mainstream Ottoman historian, someone like Karen Barkey or, or, or Tesjan, and I and I cite them again just because they are the ones who've made this general statement about the 18th century. Uh, they're the ones who are saying, um, you know, look, the Christians were beginning, to, uh, you know, we, you know, we're looking for a way out, and finally enough, it's the it's the new generation of Greek historians, people like Vangelis who were saying, actually, no, Greeks are still pretty <laughs> attached to the empire. It's kind of a strange uh, flip of uh, of
0: roles. Well, it, you know, when we try to look at the big picture, it's hard because you have to generalize, and obviously it's very complex. I get Vangelis that. looked at right. Cappadocian Greeks who don't speak Greek. Right, Their situation is much different than people who live in modern-day
1: Greece, but right. yes, certainly. Actually, along those lines, there isn't too much, but um, I try and sort of at least um, make a few um, uh, references to that uh, in uh, in in the book about how we think about the Greek world. That there are people who are Greek Orthodox Christian who don't speak Greek. There are Muslims who can uh, there there are Christians who convert to Islam uh, who continue to speak to speak Greek. So I also try and raise that mm-hmm. issue of getting out of the boxes of language and mm-hmm. um, uh, and religion. And, and speaking about this. Um, ongoing attachment to the empire, which again, I'm not trying to argue that there was any sort of um, uh, sort of greater tolerance or anything like that. I'm just talking about st- stabilizing your position as part of Ottoman uh, decentralization. There's been um, uh, some some great work recently on the 18th century Peloponnese, and here I'm thinking particularly of the work of um, uh, Gundu. Uh, showing that right up until 1768, with the outbreak of the Orlov Rebellion, there was widespread holding of office by Christians. There were politi- political alliances that crossed uh, 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 regional lines, and so I bring up that uh, that article simply because it's it's the it's an excellent study of a particular region mm-hmm. and the 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 participation of Christians uh, in Ottoman governance. Mm. And I hope that doesn't sound too. Um, I'm not trying to sort of paint a rosy picture or say anything about convivencia. I'm trying to say that maybe we shouldn't think about how much privilege Muslims had versus how much privilege Christians had. It might be more productive to think about how much privilege Christians had in the 18th century relative to earlier centuries. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Chris Creighton here with Professor Molly Green. We're talking about uh, her new work, The Edinburgh History of the Greeks, 1453 to 1768. We, we won't be able to cover the entire contents of that work in the podcast, and indeed, that's not the point. We encourage you all to check out our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, to get the link uh, for that uh, work on um, Edinburgh University Press's website. Uh, I did want to ask one last question, uh, Professor Green, uh, before concluding our conversation, because uh, I know that a lot of your previous uh, research that many of our listeners are familiar with uh, dealt with uh, issues of the margins. I mean, you you looked at pirates, for example, who are kind of uh, marginal actors in these very uh, transitional spaces, kind of, you know, I know from my own conversations with Amr Safa Gurkan that, you know, in the Mediterranean, people are going back and forth across what was considered a firm boundary, which is the boundary between Christianity and Islam. Clearly not uh i want to know how your work on uh, the you know w- what role does the margins uh we've talked a lot about the greek patriarch we've talked a lot about the structures what role do the margins play in the story of the history of the greeks and understanding the relationship with that in the state
1: well um actually I, I would say that this is the first book that i have uh, written that is not about uh, the margins this is a book about a population uh that was uh, at the very least a um um an important minority, uh, and even a, a substantial part of the uh, part of the population of the empire, depending on how you define uh, Hellenism, yeah. and we all know that from the late 14th century up until 1516, uh, Christians were the majority population. So here I'm writing much more about um, the center. Now, of course, one of the things I've tried to do in this book, and and people will decide if I if I have or have not, is to argue that writing about the Christians of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, is writing Ottoman history mm-hmm. just as much uh, as if one writes about uh, Muslims?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this um, uh, this book is very much actually writing against the tradition of uh, uh, of uh, of margins that I've done in the, yeah. in the in the two other books because uh, Christians are absolutely um, uh, fundamental uh, to Ottoman history. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book is an attempt uh, also to rethink geographies and. Um, what the empire looks like if we uh, if if we go outside of Istanbul, one of the things I I try and talk about again for the for the 17th and 18th centuries is how the is how the the view of the empire shifts depending on if we're looking at the Balkans or the or Anatolia. Sure. Again, one of the things that's said about the 18th century is that it ushers in a, a long age of stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the 17th century is a century of, of turmoil and upheaval with the Jelali revolts, for the Balkans and here it's not just me but other uh-huh. people are writing about this. I, I I guess I want to make the Balkans more central uh-huh. to Ottoman history, uh, as they were, of course, to the Ottomans. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, it's the it's the reverse. If you look at the Balkans, uh, the 17th century is relatively quiet. There is the flight to the mountains, but uh-huh. we have no discussion of of the wholesale destruction of cities. A place like Sedes was very quiet as opposed to what goes on in Anatolia. Um, and then in the 18th century, I'm trying to work through the consequences of the destabilization of the Northern Balkans. Mm. And what does that mean? Yeah. I, think, I think Fred Anscombe is correct when he says that the, uh, the, um, the destruction and then the recapture of a city like Belgrade destroyed previous Christian-Muslim um, sort of relative equanimity. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happened further south in the Balkans. A place like is a place like Veria, very Mm -hmm. quiet. Um, At the same time, the upheaval in the northern Balkans allowed the Patriarchate to extend his influence to the detriment of uh, the Serbs and various centrifugal uh, forces. Mm -hmm. So it's also, uh, the book sort of um, talks about looking at the empire from the point of view of the Balkans, versus looking at the empire from the point of view of Anatolia.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, I've, I've, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, most of the guests we have on the podcast are talking either about an article or a monograph of um, based on, uh, you know, maybe their dissertation research or their first book. To talk about a survey book on the podcast is relatively rare for us, and it's raised a lot of uh, issues. I mean, there's a lot of points that people will want to discuss further uh, after listening to... Uh, your talk and hopefully reading a little in your book, Um, really touching on a lot of the fundamental debates in the field of Ottoman history. So I'm really glad that you came on the podcast today and discussed these uh, points with us and and shared your work.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, for
0: those who want to find out more, as I've said, on OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, we have a bibliography that contains uh, a link to Molly Green's The Edinburgh History of the Greeks, as well as a few other Uh, works for background reading that have been mentioned in the podcast. That's a space where you can leave your comments and questions, uh, and hopefully get in touch with our Facebook group where over 20,000 people are, uh, looking at our posts and sharing and occasionally commenting on some of the content. We want you all to join us there for the conversation. Uh, I want to invite you to join in next time for our next episode. Uh, thank you for listening and until our next episode, take care.